Welcome to Tower Talks with Inside Towers, the wireless infrastructure industries podcast. And now for your weekly recap, a timely review of this week's top headlines and takeaways. Here's your host. Welcome to Inside Towers Week in Review. I'm Leslie Stimson, Inside Towers Washington Bureau Chief. And with me today is John Salentano, our business editor. This episode is sponsored by Inside Towers Intelligence, a quarterly market report that dives deep into the wireless infrastructure ecosystem. It looks at market trends, capital expenditures, relevant M&A transactions, and more. Intelligence is designed for managers, marketers, and investors. The 2023 Volume 2 is available now. An annual subscription includes an exclusive briefing and online support. For more information or to subscribe, visit InsideTowers.com slash intelligence. Well, John, you had a big week. Um, You went to a conference, and there's a couple of things you wanted to talk to us about today. Uh, Yes, Leslie, uh, it has been a busy week. I think, uh, you know, even though it's the middle of uh, summer, uh, there's still lots going on in our in our industry and it keeps us hopping. So um, let me get to a couple of things. Um, I'll I'll get to the conference highlights in a minute. But you mentioned intelligence. One of the um, key features of intelligence is uh, is our proprietary uh, wireless infrastructure value index. Uh, the, we developed this as part of the intelligence service. And what it com- involves is we, we're tracking the stocks of 14 um, infrastructure companies in five asset classes. So we have um, the big three tower companies. We have um, three fiber companies. We have uh, three data center companies, the three big cable companies, and two diversified infrastructure companies like Brookfield and Digital Bridge. So every week when the market closes on a Friday, we, we um, do a roll-up of the stock prices and how those stock prices have changed over the week and um, take a look at what the market caps uh, of these companies are and, and try to present a comprehensive view of um, uh, how that uh, the index that makes that is comprised of all these companies, how the index is performing. Well, uh, this year it's been you know, performing, but uh, at, a, at a lower pace than it has in the past. Uh, since the beginning of the year, we've been running, um, you know, at about an 80%. Uh, the, 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 the index value is about 80 when there, our reference is 100. So anything above 100 shows growth and expansion. Anything below 100, you know, we're looking at some kind of either contraction or slow growth. And so the index has been, um, you know, kind of trundling along uh, through the first half of the year uh, at a at a that modest pace. Um, the good news is, as, as we hit the end of the second quarter, right at the end of June, it started to tick up. And I think if you were following stocks uh, um, in the past week or two, we're seeing signs of, you know, better performance uh, in in the in the stocks, you know, uh, of these companies now the companies are actually performing better than what their stock prices would suggest. You know, they're indicating growth, their, their, um, you know, their outlook and their guidance is, is fairly upbeat to the extent that, you know, they're, they're showing growth in, in, in their business uh, through the end of the year and, and into next year. Now it's a little bit subdued compared to what we've seen last year, but just because some of the CapEx is, is off and which we knew that, 
But um, the companies are performing reasonably well. We're, we have the second quarter earnings calls just starting, and it will run for the next few weeks, so we're going to watch those fairly closely. But the index is an indicator of the relative health of these these flagship companies uh, in, in the in the sectors that they represent. When you roll it all up and, and take a look at the aggregate and um, and how that's moving directionally, I think it gives you a bit of an indication of um, of, um, the, of the, the pulse of, of the industry. But like I said, you know the companies themselves seem to do, be performing at their what their stock price suggests. So uh, we try to reconcile that difference a little bit. Uh, uh, sometimes Wall Street doesn't understand what these guys are doing, but we do, and uh, and we'll keep covering that. So, um, the a conference I attended this week, Tower Exchange Meetup Americas, uh, 2023, was held in Fort Lauderdale. And the focus of the conference, I mean, Tower Exchange has a number of regional conferences that look at um, the uh, make makeup and uh, opportunities and risks of tower companies around the world. They cover actually an interesting uh, group. They cover about 300 tower companies worldwide. And then they'll hold regional conferences to look at and do a little bit of a deeper dive on how the tower companies in a given region are performing. So this particular conference focused on Latin America. And um, and they went country by country and looked at the uh, the tower uh, companies and the uh, and the the mobile network operators that they serve in these countries and and you know the conference discussed you know the pros and cons of ups and downs of how the mobile operators are performing and what that suggests in terms of the uh, activity that will fall through to the the tower companies and you know Latin America has been a little bit subdued in terms of its economic performance um, uh, compared to other regions but um, there are um, uh, Carriers in a, in in uh, the big countries like Brazil, Chile, that are moving on 5G, that's stimulating demand for more towers. Um, there are other uh, countries like uh, Colombia, uh, Peru, Argentina. They're they're actually continuing to densify their 4G networks, and that again has a positive impact on the demand for for towers. Um, the governments in these countries are um, are uh, trying to stimulate. Um, more uh, opportunity for um, for infrastructure. Uh, certainly, there's an emphasis, as there is in this country and elsewhere, uh, for more broadband connectivity, both wired and wireless. And that's leading to uh, um, demand and, and expenditures on, on new infrastructure. So it was a, a, a good conference from that aspect. Um, we got to... Um, uh, meet with and and hear from um, operators uh, throughout the region, and uh, they bring a different perspective. If you're, if you're a little bit concentrated on the domestic market, like um, it, it, there's a tendency to be sometimes. This was, uh, I think, a unique opportunity to hear from what's going on elsewhere. Um, the big tower companies in the in the region, you know, American Tower has a big presence. Certainly, SBA uh, has a big presence. Phoenix uh, uh, Tower International has a big presence, along with um, uh, a couple of newcomers. Uh, last year, we we reported on American Mobile spinning off its towers into a, a new organization uh, called Citios. Um, uh, prior to that, Millicom had uh, uh, carved out its tower business into a, a separate organization called Lati. So you know, there's movement in the tower business. There's new construction being planned, and um, 
you know, the the uh, the tower companies themselves uh, see a, a, a growing and positive direction uh, from uh, coming through a fairly uh, a fairly subdued period, you know, even even prior to COVID, but certainly since then, it's been uh, the reason has been a little little slow on the uptake, but it, it you know, that we're seeing some very positive signs. So, you know, my takeaway of the conference it was informative, it was interesting, and um, you know, I think that's a region uh, we'll continue to watch. Thank you, John. It's, it sounds like that conference was really worthwhile. It, it was. It was, uh, you know, not a huge conference in terms of attendance. Um, several hundred people, certainly, but uh, and, and a few exhibitors, some of whom are our, 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 our friends and, and advertisers. And uh, so I got to catch up with a few people there as well. But, yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's in our space. They're focused on towers and... Um, you know, they, they, they had some lots of good information to, to share. I like the smaller conferences. You know, you could get, get some good hallway conversations going there. More time to Absolutely. do that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the big news, um, well, one of the big things going on for me this week was the Wall Street Journal had three articles. They did a lot of research saying basically that AT&T, Verizon, and several other telecoms have left behind something like 2,000 miles of lead sheath cables um, in the water, in the ground, on poles. They're relics of the old Bell Telephone Network. Um, And that they haven't been, and so the Wall Street Journal is saying these cables have not been addressed by either the companies or environmental regulators. And they're alleging that, that there's a health concern here, you know, because it's lead. And the practice of, you know, some former telecom executives they spoke with said, you know, in the past, companies believed it was safer to leave the lead cables in place rather than move them because, you know, lead could be released as you're moving them. So that's why when technology advanced and companies turned to plastic sheathing and later to fiber optics, they often left the old lines in place. So in response to the Wall Street Journal's reporting, uh, AT&T, Verizon, and other telecoms that have succeeded Ma Bell said they don't, uh, initially said they don't believe the cables are a public health hazard. Um, and they do emphasize they follow regulatory safety guidelines uh, for their workers and for the public. U.S. Telecom said it would work together with the companies and I guess the government to address any concerns. Um, they stand ready to engage constructively on the on the issue. Uh, the who was it? Verizon said, you know, it's taking these concerns very seriously. It's testing sites where the WSJ found contamination. Um, and, you know, keep in mind, these cables were initially laid between the 1800s and the 1960s. So thoughts have changed about how to handle them over the years. New Street Research uh, has estimated it could cost nearly $60 billion to remediate all this. Um, Jonathan Chaplin wrote in an investor note, that right now it's unclear if if this is even an issue, how much it would cost to fix and who would pay for fixing it. Um, the They estimate that some 48 million 
uh, units, housing and business are being exposed to lead casing. Even And that's even after fiber upgrades started to begin being used in 2005. Um, there was a larger number, but they've replaced some cables over time because of construction or they failed or just because of routine maintenance and repair. Um, New Street Research believes AT&T probably has the highest exposure overall on this. But this comes at an interesting time because the government is about to distribute um, several billion dollars for the bead program. Um, and Jonathan Chaplin said, you know, we would assume that now this has come out, that states would make removing the lead-cased copper cables a condition of receiving the bead funds now that this issue has emerged. This assumes the conclusions in the WSJ articles are true. Of that 14 million, um, about 30% or 4 million bead eligible units could have lead, lead exposure, NSR estimates. But NSR is very open about the fact that these are all guesstimates. They really, they're not sure, you know, how many lead cables are really there, how many are of those, how many are a problem, and what would it cost? They note that um, some of the AT&T has started, developed a web page for the public explaining everything it's doing and what it has done. And it's saying the health and safety and well-being of its people and the customers and the community are of paramount importance. They do note that some of the reporting conflicts with what independent experts and science have stated about the safety of these cables. And it also conflicts with some results of AT&T's testing AT&T said, should there be a need for further analysis, we will work with industry peers and other stakeholders and act responsibly. So I think um, before we got going on this, John, you and I were talking about how it's hard to get a handle on how many lead sheathed cables are really out there. And you yeah. were thinking that yeah. the data might be a little old. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you cited the interval that uh, most of these were in installed, right? They're the early part of the 20th century. And, uh, um, you know, uh, as as organizations have changed, and you mentioned that, you know, the AT&T, as we know today, and Verizon are, are successor companies of the old Bell system. And, you know, over time, you know, record keeping changes, a lot of the stuff that we have automated today, they may not have automated those original records, which are all <laughs> written in hand, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, it, you know, I think generally, and, and if you think about a lead sheath cable, mo most of those would be involved with high pair count buried cables. Um, yeah, you may get some aerial cables that have lead on them too, but because of the weight, of, you know, so most of that was to protect the copper wires inside a buried cable and and you know in rural areas where you actually bury cable it was to keep rodents from eating through the cable because i don't know these uh, these prairie dogs they, somehow they like uh i don't know if they like the uh plastic or the copper or what but in any event uh you know a lot of that installation the early installations were in cities right mm. um either in ducts or as you move out of the cities you know they just direct bury it in the ground and and when they they switched over to 
other technologies, uh, particularly fiber, they, you know, you're not going to, rem- you know, the practice was just cut the cable and leave it in the ground. Like, like you mentioned, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but where there's new construction and you start to get into those rights of way and you start digging up that cable, now you're exposing that lead and that becomes the issue. But yeah, for, to know exactly where all these routes are and, uh, how big these cables and how long they've been in place. Um, yeah, I'd be surprised if they had any detailed records, uh, other than sort of a general picture of, uh, of, uh, the, the different cable routes they've used over time for other purposes. But, uh, yeah, you know, you gotta, uh, those, those records probably are long gone. So they're, you know, it's, it's, uh, a guesstimate at, at best, but, uh, you know, they're using the, the right of way data today to know where to run fiber, but, what's in those ducts or what's in that right of way, who knows? Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting as this story develops because um, uh, uh, Congress is starting to notice. Uh, Senator Ed Markey wrote a letter to U.S. Telecom. Um, mm. He wants answers from the companies. He called it the height. This is the height of corporate irresponsibility. He uh, he wants answers to several questions, mainly where are these cables uh, right. He wants U.S. Telecom to get those answers from their members by July 25th, I think. And Markey, he's not just some environmental yahoo. He he was one of the authors of the 1996 Telecom Act, so he does have gravitas yeah. there. But go ahead, you were going to say something. No, what year? What January, uh, July 26th? What year? Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Because it's going to take a minute to uh, get all this data, right? People are going to have to start digging up the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this story. And and, you know, I. I, A lot of lists. It's not. uh, Yeah. And I don't think it's deliberate on the part of the companies, but they just, you know, like I said, they go through changes, uh, org changes, uh, process changes. And, you know, they, they, you know, de emphasize the need to keep track of this stuff and thinking, you know, we're moving on to new technologies, but not probably giving a lot of weight to the environmental impact or the the health issues. Um, yeah. But as we can see in hindsight, they, they ought to be. But that Well, be. you know, it's, it's, to me, it's similar to asbestos in a home building. Um, yes. As long as you keep it encased, you're fine. As long as you don't disturb right. it. Um, you know, when you're rehabbing, a, remodeling a home or something like that. So, yeah, yeah, we'll have to see. That's how a good analogy, goes. by the way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we know a lot of homes uh, that have been built for a while. They have asbestos in them or they have lead paint. Uh, to your point, you, unless you, you know, you're renovating or, or, or tearing it out or something, it, it can just stay in place, you know, and it's kind of the same thing with this. If they don't touch it, probably fine but uh when you have to somehow uh, expose it or dig it up or whatever else they're doing then it becomes an issue yeah so another story i was working on this week the fcc nominees their nomination made it out of the senate commerce committee and the commerce committee sent them to the full senate and maria committee chair maria cantwell was saying about, you know, how important the FCC is because it impacts nearly every part of our lives and domestic economy. And um, she she said it was important to keep the nominations moving and not let them just sit there. Um, of Anna Gomez, you know, who was nominated to fill the empty third Democratic seat, 
She said if confirmed, not only would Gomez be the first Latina on the commission in more than 20 years, Gomez has, quote, demonstrated she has the experience and the judgment to be highly effective in this role as commissioner and has earned bipartisan support. Um, you'll recall that Gloria Tristani was of Hispanic descent and she was a commissioner. So, uh, Cantwell also praised the renominations of Jeffrey Starks and Brendan Carr. Starks, she said, had received much support because of many bipartisan telecommunications issues, broadband access, and network security that he's worked on. And she mentioned, you know, CAR leads the Connected Care Pilot Program, which supports the delivery of telehealth to low-income Americans and veterans. Mm -hmm. She said Commissioner CAR has pledged to be bipartisan in his role and to treat every entity that has a matter before the FCC in a matter that is fair, just, and impartial. So the, I mean, they they did it within 15 minutes, but it was not unanimous. Ranking member Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas, he opposed uh, Gomez nomination and the Starks renomination. Uh, he said Gomez uh, refused to disavow the heavy-handed net neutrality rules, and like Starks gave non-committal answers to my request to improve transparency and accountability at the FCC. And what he was referring to were their answers to his questions during the recent nomination hearing. Uh, Gomez was just being careful. And Cruz, he was saying that the vote was rushed They to schedule it before the July 4th recess. He said confirming FCC commissioners is a serious matter. I meet with them and ask questions, but unfortunately, many senators on this committee did not have that same opportunity to meet with her. And he said requests to reschedule were not heeded. Um, and several, so he voted against Gomez and Starks and two others, uh, Marsha Blackburn, Republican from Tennessee, and Cynthia Loomis, Republican of Wyoming, followed his lead, and they voted against them as well. One Democrat um, um, voted against Carr, uh, Tammy Duckworth of Illinois. She's a Democrat. Um, and no one opposed the nomination of Farrah Damelin to be the agency's inspector general. All the action concerned the commissioners. Cantwell said the nominees could go to the Senate floor for a vote before the August recess, which would be really speedy. And that is that. Um, yes, that's a wrap. And thank you for listening to Inside Towers Week in Review. And we will uh, be back in a week. And for a wrap up of all the week's news, check out our Saturday edition. Thank you for listening to Tower Talks. To subscribe to our podcast, our daily newsletter, or use our other industry resources, please visit InsideTowers.com. Until next time, you've been listening to Tower Talks from Inside Towers, the wireless infrastructure industries podcast.